Well, hello. Uh, my name is Ainsley, and I'll be sharing on the passage of Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Um, and this text is really teaching us about unity and about coming together. Paul is urging this community to live a life worthy of the calling that they've received by bearing with one another in love and by coming together on what is common. And I've been spending a lot of time this year thinking about what unity is. It's been at the front of my mind. Maybe it has for you too. Prompted by the media, prompted by issues of injustice and inequality, prompted by questions in my heart of what it means to be a Christian in our world today, what it truly means to hold my faith and stand one with God and one with my community when there is so much division. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what unity is, and I keep being drawn back to diversity. Diversity of thought, diversity of expression, diversity of opinions and lifestyles. What does it mean to stand united in a world that is so divided? I think this is the question that Paul was asking in the city that he was standing in, in Ephesus. Um, a major trading point and a city filled with different people, worshiping different gods and holding different fears, wanting to live lives in different ways, having different ideas and opinions and cultures, a massive clash of cultures and tensions and beliefs. And a church was forming in this place. And so in the church, you have different ideas of what it means to live out faith, of what it means to be holy, of, of what it means to, to be a neighbor. Different thoughts on who could be included and, and who couldn't. Different interpretations of truth. Not just different people, but different people coming together, carrying different experiences, wounds, dreams, visions. All of them coming into this thing called church because something was drawing them in. And I know it was 2,000 years ago, but I have to wonder if it doesn't sound a bit like Vancouver and our city today. And I find it so relevant for our community forming in this place, especially as I've been asking what it looks like to stand in unity with the church in this city, especially as we're looking around at the, the cultures and the worldviews and the experiences and the wounds and the personalities and the visions. What does it look like to stand as a church with a breadth of opinions and thoughts? What does it look like to stand with Christians who might think differently? Christians who might live out and express their faith differently? Christians with fears that are different, excitements, disappointments, dreams that are different? What does it look like to be different and stand together in unity as one body, one people, one community, and one faith? while acknowledging that we aren't all the same, just because we hold the same core truth. And we do hold the same core truth, but, but we're not the same. We hold different beliefs in each community. We have different ideas of how to interpret the Bible. And that's okay, because there's something that actually ties us together. And that something is Jesus. And it is that we believe in one God and one Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. 
And so isn't it sad when we see differences and we lean into division instead of a complicated community? And so we lose the breadth of the expression of the church as we separate again and again. How often do we choose division over unity? Paul is asking us to choose the complicated way forward, the way that's messy and hard. He's asking us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and reminding us that there is one body and one Spirit. And I just see him saying, you're all together, you're one, even if other things are different. I see him urging us to look for the common ground, to, to the things that make us connected and bring us together, that hold us as family. And so my thoughts are, as I read this passage, that what if churches and communities are meant to be united on the ones, the one body, the one faith, the one church, and yet full of diversity? What if creating space for diversity is what prepares us to default to unity over division rather than division over unity, coming together on what is the same and giving space for the expression of what is different. Hey everybody, my name is Graham and I have the privilege of just sharing briefly a little bit of my thoughts on Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 this morning. I'm actually going to read from the ESV version and the message version. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to the ESV version of Ephesians 5 with me? Here Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And now in the message version, Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, Watch what God does and then do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. For the sake of time, I'm going to focus on four things today, which are two commands and two reasons why. The first command being, be an imitator of God. Like in 1 Peter 15, it says, be holy for I am holy. Or 2 Corinthians, he says, now you are an ambassador of Christ. The idea is rather simple, but in practice, the, the bar could not have been set any higher. Here, Paul is saying that we would actually make God our example and our model. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, he says, watch what God does and then you do it. Watch and observe what he does. It's hard to imitate anything from a distance. And so in order to imitate God, we, we have to be close to him. We have to be intimate, we can't be distant. And now God's behavior towards us becomes the model for our behavior towards other people around us. God, a friend to the poor, so we are a friend to the poor. God, an enemy to the oppressor. The God who forgives, so we forgive. The God of grace, 
a God who mourns with the brokenhearted and welcomes the wanderer home with open arms, and so we do as well. A God who is faithful to us. His love is extravagant. And here Paul is saying, go and love like that. But why? Leads us to reason number one. Because you're a beloved child. Children are natural imitators, aren't they? They often just do what they see their parents do, sometimes for, for better or for worse. But this is important here because he's not saying live this way or else. He's saying live this way because. Like this is an identity thing. He's saying live this way because you're a beloved child. You belong to his eternal family. You are loved. And it's from this place firmly rooted in our identity as a beloved child that the overflow of joy should drive us to extend that to people around us. As a beloved child, we are no longer orphans. Theologian Charles Spurgeon once said, I've heard of an atheist who said he can get over every argument except the example of his godly mother. He could never answer that. Which leads us to the second command, walk in love. Pastor Tim Keller points out that he doesn't ask us to sprint in love. He asks us to walk. It wouldn't last very long if it were a sprint, would it? Love is not meant to be short-lived and occasional. It's meant to be natural and consistent, like walking. Does your love resemble more of a, of a walk or a sprint? I'm asking myself the same question. I think we all should. Jesus said himself, this is how people will know you are my disciples. Through the love you have for one another. And so walk in love. Why? Well, reason number two, because Christ loves us and gave himself up for us. We often think that we could lay our life down in a large kind of dramatic way to show our love for others. And sure, maybe there's a time for that. But I think often God calls us to lay our life down little by little with our daily choices. And Christ is our example. Life-giving love often comes through personal sacrifice and Christ loves you. He calls you his beloved child. Let me tell you right now, if you try and imitate God on your own, it's going to lead you to a place of bitterness and burnout. I've been there and I, I would prefer not to go back there. But really, when we are firmly rooted in our identity as beloved children of God, it's from that place that we have the privilege to actually be imitators of him as well. You are a beloved child. Hi, my name is Sheila. The verses I'm reading this morning are from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 and verse 29. Leading up to these verses, Paul has been exhorting us to leave our old corrupt selves and to put on our new nature that the Holy Spirit gives us when we are transformed by his saving grace. So Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Lying is a false impression. It's used in a situation involving deception. It's often used to get oneself into or out of a situation. Lying is diametrically opposed to our new nature, and it's not of the Lord. 
Satan is the father of lies. Lying is destructive mainly because it affects personal relationships. It destroys trust and human harmony, and it seriously harms the unity of the church. Paul teaches that we are to speak truth with our neighbors. We are more than just each other's neighbors. In the church, our relationship with one another is even closer. For as Paul says, we are members with one another. We are the church, the body of Christ. To quote John McKay, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. When Paul says, speak truth with your neighbor, he's quoting from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. Zechariah, the prophet, is speaking to the remnant of Israel, trying to impress upon them, the people, coming home out of a long exile, the need to live righteously. The people are exhorted to renew their energy toward the building of the temple. They're also exhorted to renew their energy toward righteous living with one another. It's a new beginning for them. And isn't this true for us here today, as we have the opportunity to participate in God's establishing of a new church family and ministries on the North Shore, so that many lost people will meet Jesus and receive the Lord as their personal Savior? So if I lie to you, I harm not only you, but also myself and the Lord. I corrupt the body of Christ. I cannot be a fit instrument for the Lord or for you if I'm not truthful and honest. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impact grace to the hearers. The word corrupt refers to that which is foul or rotten, such as putrid meat. As a child of God, foul language of any sort should never pass my lips because it's totally out of character with the new life, the new nature that I have in Christ Jesus. Speech is a wonderful gift of God. It is one of the things that makes us like God, we, where His likeness is reflected in us through our speech. And there's much power in words. God spoke creation into being. Our use of words is another example of how personal relationships are nurtured or damaged. Paul teaches that we are to use our words constructively for edifying, to build each other up so that we impart grace to those who hear. Our words serve to help others, encourage, cheer, comfort, bless, and even to bring healing. So these reminders, to be honest in everything, to speak truth in love, and to edify those around me seem even more poignant and wonderful, especially now, as we of the former Sutherland Church find ourselves at a place of a new beginning. We're going to be merging with the Way Church family, renovating our place of worship, and more importantly, embracing our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus and building relationships with one another to serve our Lord together. Thank you. Hey everyone, I'm Steph and I'm so excited to be sharing with you all this morning. The passage I'm going to jump into is Ephesians 4:32, and this is how it reads. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. 
So I've read this verse many times and heard it many more times, and I find that my mind always skips over kindness and compassion and just focuses on forgiveness. And as soon as I realized this, I thought, oh, I should jump in and figure out why is it that forgiveness is on the heels of kindness and compassion, and why does Paul bind these three together? So I think when we function in deep kindness and compassion, we actually have to do less forgiving. And this is what I mean. Imagine the impact of having so much compassion on everyone around you that you start thinking the best of all of their motives and their actions. Here's my favorite and most extreme example. Imagine you're driving down the highway and someone cuts you off really abruptly, you slam on your brakes, and in that moment, you have a decision to make. Am I gonna be super angry and upset? Or am I gonna choose to think the best of them and assume they are going to the hospital for a family emergency or for the birth of their first child? And I know for me, when I choose to do the latter, it really does decrease my need to forgive exponentially when I start to think the best of their motives and their actions. Now, I just want you to picture the culture that we would create in a church if we embrace this. One with such a strong focus on kindness and compassion that we start thinking the best of the motives and actions of our friends, our family, parents, spouses, children, mentors, pastors, and even the church as a whole. I think the only possible result of embracing this mentality is that we would have less forgiving to do as we become less offendable and through developing our own compassion towards one another. And I know many of us are not naturally compassionate or naturally kind or feel like we're at a place where we'd automatically think the best of everyone because I know I sure have a long ways to go. But today, I just hope to encourage you to focus on growing these characteristics in yourself and supporting one another in it. So with that at the forefront of our minds, I know that we also are still constantly forgiving people around us. So I wanna share why Paul leads with be kind and compassionate and follows with forgiveness. So the way he communicates this shows that forgiveness is actually a result of being kind and compassionate. In other words, you can't have one without the other. To be kind is to forgive, and to forgive is to be kind. Paul is telling us that even if you don't feel like forgiving, it really is the kind thing to do. It's like saying, I'm gonna have compassion on you. And I wanna pause for a moment and acknowledge that forgiveness can be really difficult. And there's so many times where it's a long process and you're choosing time and time again to forgive somebody. But my prayer is that this quick thought today will help you in your journey of forgiveness. So many people today highlight the importance of being kind and yet those same people are angry and holding on to bitterness towards one another. And Paul groups these words together because he knows it's actually best for us as humans to operate in a type of kindness and compassion that ends with forgiveness, since the result of withholding forgiveness can cause great division, anger, and pain. And I think Augustine says it best, to withhold forgiveness is to take poison and expect the unforgiven to die. In other words, if you are personally choosing not to forgive somebody as a punishment for them, you're actually hurting yourself more because of the damage bitterness is gonna cause you. 
So let's be a people and a church that are so filled with kindness and compassion that we overflow in forgiveness and release all bitterness. And when our call to kindness, compassion, and forgiveness feels too great, let's remind ourselves and each other of the forgiveness we have received in Christ Jesus. When I take time to dwell on this truth, I really do find that my capacity to forgive others grows as I sit in gratitude of the grace given to me by Jesus. He really is our ultimate example of forgiveness, and it's because of his kind and compassionate heart that he chose to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. So let's be a church that thinks the best of one another and develops a culture of kindness and compassion that leads to forgiveness. Hi, I'm, my name is Yu Chai. I'll be sharing from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18, uh, beginning with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, Take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In this passage, Paul exhorts us to be strong in the Lord. And he gives the reason, because we are engaged in an ongoing spiritual battle with the forces of darkness. The purpose of highlighting the reality of spiritual warfare is not to provide free publicity for the devil and his minions. And the point is not to use spiritual warfare to explain all the bad things that happen. Uh, we must not be ignorant of it. The Apostle Peter warns us, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The way Paul phrases the exhortation is in the passive form. Be strong, which also means to be strengthened or to be made strong because it is not us, but Christ who makes us strong. How then can we experience the power that comes from Christ? And from the passage, we know that it is by putting on the armor of God. There is much to say about the different parts of the armor and how each one is critical to our fight against the spiritual forces of darkness. At the same time, if we look at the armor as a whole, it is actually a picture of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It consists of truth 
righteousness, gospel of peace, salvation, faith, and the word of God. Everything that Paul has talked about in this letter concerning our salvation in Christ. This means that when we heard the gospel and put our faith in Jesus, we receive the armor. It also means that we need to keep hearing the gospel and allowing the gospel to strengthen us, to transform us in the Lord on a daily basis. Since my family and I joined the church earlier this year, uh, as we moved from Singapore to Vancouver, uh, we have been so blessed in so many ways uh, through the people, the small group, and the ministry of the church. I'm so excited about what God is doing in and through our church, especially as we embark on God's mission in North Vancouver. But in order for us to be where God wants us to be and to do what God wants us to do, we need the armour of God. Same can be said for us in our walk with God. Personally for me, I'm seeking the Lord for certain breakthrough in my life. Perhaps it is the same for you, or maybe you are seeking God for greater strength to navigate through the challenges that you are currently facing. Wherever we are in our walk with God, be it on the mountaintop or in the valley, we need the armour of God. It is not enough to have an intellectual understanding of the armour or to have a past experience of it. There must be a daily commitment to put on the armour of God. We need to be so tuned in to the gospel of Christ so that we will not be easily shaken by the present evil that confronts us. A great Bible teacher, Warren Wisby, said this in his commentary. When King David put off his armour and returned to his palace, he was in greater danger than when he was on the battlefield. The devil is always looking for opportunity to deceive, to discourage, and to distract us. So we must pay attention to what Paul is saying. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil.